God is present with us also in His Word, and so we turn to His Word to hear from Him words of life and truth, to hear of Him and hear of ourselves. And our reading today is from Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 to 26, a reminder that you'll find that on the card that's inserted in your bulletins so that you can read along as I read aloud. Let's listen now to God's holy and inerrant word. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, For God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by the steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed to it. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Together. Our Heavenly Father, it is with thanks to you for all you have done for us in Jesus, that we bring these gifts, these tithes, and these offerings before you and asking that you would accomplish much good with them, that you would, with these gifts, reveal your kingdom and push back the kingdom of the darkness, that through these gifts you would allow the gospel to go out from this place to all the world. And Father, as we ourselves prepare to sit beneath your word this morning, as we prepare ourselves to hear again the wonderful good news of the gospel, we pray that you would meet with us all because we all come through these doors facing a variety of different things in life. For many, this time of year is a time of joy, but to others, it is a time of intense sorrow and pain. And we remember that when we walk through these doors. Father, many of us come this morning with anxious hearts, preoccupied with all kinds of thoughts about the future. Others of us come and we find ourselves heavily burdened, find ourselves hurt and bitter. And some of us find ourselves very comfortable. In fact, so comfortable that we fail to recognize our desperate need of you. Some find themselves this morning walking 
so, so very closely with you. And still others feel as though they remember a time when they walked closely with you. But now you seem so, so very far. And others among us have questions and doubts. And we pray that you would meet with us all. That you would reveal to us all that we really are all the same despite what may be happening in our lives at this moment, despite what the symptoms may be, because we are all far more broken, far more twisted and corrupt than we could ever imagine. And so we together stand in need of the hope of the gospel. We stand in need of being reminded that it can be true, that we can be far more broken than we can imagine, but also far more loved and far more secure And far more accepted than we ever dreamed possible because of what you have done for us through the person and work of Jesus. And so we pray that with the eyes of faith, you would help us to see him this morning. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. At this time, the children, um, children ages three to six are dismissed to Children's Church. So you can make your way to the back of the sanctuary now. This morning, we are, we are going to be concluding um, our series through the Ten Commandments, which we've been studying together throughout this fall. And next week, we'll turn our attention specifically to the Christmas story. But here's what we've been saying week after week in this series on God's law or the Ten Commandments. We've been saying... That God's law is a description of what he made you and me to be. His commands, they aren't arbitrary, right? They're, They're not meaningless codes of conduct for us. They are painting a picture of what it means to be truly and fully human. And and on the one hand, that's beautiful, but on the other, it hurts. Because when we hear what we were meant to be. It reminds us of how broken we really are, of how far short we really fall of being just human. And so the law, as it reveals this to us, it drives us, it sends us fleeing into the arms of Jesus, that he would be our rescuer, that he would be our redeemer, that he would deliver us and accepted in him, loved in him, secure in him and approved in him. He sends us back to the law in order that he might graciously restore our humanity, redeem us and recreate us in his own image. Every week we've been saying that. And now I want you to see how this story of God giving his law, how it ends in Exodus chapter 20 and that passage that we read earlier. My wife and I, we enjoy watching movies together when we can. And, and like a lot of people, we, we like suspense, suspenseful movies, right? Movies that keep you guessing, movies that hold out a certain tension and it's got to be resolved and you're, you're waiting for it to be resolved or trying to figure out how it's going to be resolved. And so you're picking up on the clues all along and the foreshadowing. You want foreshadowing, but not too much. You know, you want enough so that it makes sense in the end, right? Twists and turns. Who's the bad guy? How are they going to pull off the heist? And how will, they, how will they find each other again, right? And occasionally, 
we'll have, we'll have a night where we're watching a movie together, but I've already seen the movie. And she doesn't know how it's going to turn out. And so throughout the movie, I'm both watching the movie, but I'm also watching her because I want to see her reactions to it. And I want, I want to see how she reacts, right? And is she picking up on the clues? And it's fun for me to listen to her offer her, her guesses about who did it and how it was done and how all these things are going to come together and how it will unfold. And my wife, Jennifer, she's very sharp. Very often she picks up on the clues and she gets it right away and the light bulbs go off and she says, I get it, so-and-so did this and this is what's going to happen. And when that happens, like a good, caring and loving husband that I am, I crush her confidence and lie to her. <laughs> and I say, no way, you're so off. Because... I, because I want it to continue building the way it's supposed to build for her, right? I want her to keep guessing until it unfolds like it should unfold. The big challenge when it comes to a series on the Ten Commandments is that many of us are at least familiar with the commandments. And even the story that it's couched in. But I, I want to ask this question. What if you were watching it? Or what if you were listening to it? And hearing it unfold for the very first time, would you have guessed that this story unfolded like this? Slaves who had been delivered by God are now hearing their Savior speak at this mountain. They're hearing him audibly speak at the foot of this mountain. I mean, shouldn't they be happy? Shouldn't they be saying, what questions, what doubts? We heard him speak. Or maybe we would guess that they would be thankful. You know, all those years in Egypt, all those years where God seemed silent and distant, like he forgot all about us in our misery and in our slavery. But now we know exactly what he's like and what he expects of us. Maybe you would expect that they would be happy. But it's actually quite different than that in the, in the passage that we read earlier. They want God to be quiet. Stop talking to us. Go away from us. Leave us alone, they are saying. And maybe it appears even strange, stranger that God, after he's given all these commands, he tells this huge group of people, go get all your livestock. We're going to kill them. You have to try... And feel some of the spence unfolding in this story as we hear it, as we go through. Because I have two very simple points for us this morning. Fear on the mountain and provision on the mountain. Okay, first let's deal with this fear that we've already alluded to on this mountain. The people were terrified. They were afraid and trembling and they started backing away from the mountain and backing away from God. But it wasn't the fear of surprise or shock or being caught off guard by anything. It's more that they were quaking with fear because they were fully and painfully aware at this mountain. Right? You just think about it. God spoke to tell them what it meant to be fully and truly human. And immediately they became painfully and fully aware of all the ways they had failed to be what they were meant to be. I really hope that throughout this series on the commandments, I haven't muddied 
clear waters for you um, in Exodus chapter 20. Because it's actually very straightforward when you think about it. No other gods. Honor the Sabbath. No murder. No adultery. No stealing, God is saying. And there may have been some implications you hadn't thought, thought through before as we've gone through this. But the trouble isn't that these commands are so complicated. Right? The trouble is that when we hear them, we realize that we have blown it. We have missed the mark. We have fallen short of being what God made us to be. But that's not all, is it? Because God's law doesn't terrify us simply because of past brokenness and sin in our lives. The law causes us to tremble like it did the Israelites. Not just because we haven't kept the law, but because we also aren't keeping the law. Right? Present tense. The law says to us, you aren't this right now. And how about let's take one more step into the painful awareness here. That the law brings. Standing before it, we see our failures past and present, but it also exposes our inability, right? Commands about worshiping and loving God before anything else. Commands about murder and not being angry and not being bitter. Commands about our sexuality and our lustful desires and commands about our lying and our two-faced hypocrisy. And I bet like me and the Israelites... You have thought at some point throughout this series, I wish, I wish I could stop the bitterness. And I wish I could stop the lust. And I wish I could stop the lies and the hypocrisy. But I can't. That's inability. That's the painful awareness of inability that the law brings. But keep thinking with me. God's law is personal. It's not abstract. Right? And that's why they were terrified, not just of the law, but of the lawgiver. Right? The end of verse 18 and verse 21 says the people backed away from God. They stood far away from him, far off from him. Verse 19, they wanted God to stop speaking to them. What's going on in this passage? There's a lot of audiovisual stuff in this passage, right? The thunder is crashing and the lightning is flashing. Right, The trumpets are blasting, blasting and the mountain is smoking and God himself is speaking. And it's all coming together to say something like this. God made you for a relationship with him and he is holy. And he demands holiness from you. What happens when we become painfully and fully aware of our brokenness? We want to, ru- we want to run We want to hide. We want to escape. We want to avoid. We want to get away because we don't want to be seen. We start rationalizing our brokenness to get away. Or we lie to cover up our secret lives. Or maybe we'll try to atone for our brokenness if we can cry enough and be sorry enough and be miserable enough in life. Or or we really rebel when we hear this. And we shake our fist at God and we say, I'm leaving you all together. I'll be my own God, thank you very much. Call my own shots. Live under my own standards. Or we get very, very religious. And being good is a great way to hide from him. 
right, behind this thin veneer of our performance and our external activity, we try to hide from what we know is true. The whole story of the Bible, read it from beginning to end, is a story that is constantly saying to us that when we are confronted with our brokenness, we'll get very creative, but we'll always tremble and run. See, here's how the Bible started with Adam and Eve. And they didn't hear trumpets. They heard footsteps in the garden. And when they heard those footsteps, they ran and hid and covered themselves with fig leaves. David, after his adulterous affair, he was left standing with this smoking gun of conspiracy, right? Having lied and even murdered to hide the truth of who he was. And what he had done. The prophet Isaiah saw a vision of God. Holy, holy, holy. And he started calling down curses upon himself. Let me tell you one of my favorite examples of this in the Bible. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus told his disciples to let down their nets. Right? After they had been fishing all day long. These were fishermen. Right? And when they let down their nets, they caught a ton of fish. So much so that the nets were breaking, which is good news for fishermen, right? I mean, I read that story and I'm thinking, cha-ching, payday. All these fish, right? But here's what Peter said to Jesus after he saw all those fish. Get away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. All of a sudden, Peter realized who was in the boat with them. And he wanted Jesus to get away from him. Let me give you one more about these fishermen. They knew their way around a boat. So what kind of storm must it have been on the Sea of Galilee that sent all these fishermen panicking and sent them to wake up Jesus on this boat, right? And when they woke Jesus up, he told the wind and the waves to be still and quiet. And they were. And this is the verse that Mark concludes that little scene with. They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. In other words, they were scared in the storm. But once they saw who was in the boat with them, they were terrified. Here's why I'm going on and on with this. Because I want you to avoid the really foolish idea that you are somehow different from all of these people. The terrifying thought that you will be seen, it just might be the most freeing thing in your life if you could just admit it. A, a novel called The Goldfinch uh, won the Pulitzer Prize this year, and it's a, it's a fascinating and disturbing book. Um, but near the end... The main character in this story, Theodore Decker, he started reflecting on his life. And he spent this whole story, which is way too many pages for a book. It was long. Um, but on my Kindle, and I didn't know how fat it was. But anyway, he spent his life hiding his shameful secrets, right? And trying in some way to right all of the wrongs in his life. But near the end of this story, he reflected on what he called... A poisonous whisper that never wholly left me. This gnawing, nagging whisper that he says, 
Some days lingered just on the threshold of my hearing, but on others roared up uncontrollably into a sort of lurid frenzy. So what is this ever-present whisper that he's talking about? That sometimes it's just on the edges of his hearing and other times it's roaring at him. He reflects that it was in the end a whisper telling him that, quote, the world and everything in it was intolerably and permanently broken, unbearable claustrophobia of the soul, the windowless room, no way out, waves of terror and shame. We try to keep that whisper at bay, and we get very, very creative in the ways that we try to keep it away from us. We keep it on the edges of our hearing, but what does the law do? This is what this story is saying. It amplifies the poisonous whisper in your ear. It amplifies that poisonous whisper into a roar of lurid frenzy, exposing our intolerable and thorough brokenness in our lives. Believe me, I I totally get this. I mean, I've told you before about that terrible apartment that I, I once lived in in Jackson, Mississippi, that had this cockroach infestation how I tried to come, how I hated coming home at night. Because if I came home at night, it meant I had to turn the lights on. And when I turned the lights on, cockroaches would scurry everywhere. And it was filthy and it was disgusting. And I know what I'm talking about here is scary. To admit what really terrifies you and what you are trying to keep at bay in your life, whether that's through rebellion or being good, or lying, or whatever. Right? I want you to admit it, because you will only find freedom. And this is what this passage is saying. You will only find freedom when you can admit the truth of your brokenness and turn to God. Okay, so in the second point, I want to show you why that's true. Because I also want you to see this, the provision at this mountain. What hope is there if we've blown it? are blowing it and can't get it right kind of thing. Well, let's look. Verse 19, when the people said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Now, that's a pretty loaded sentence, but I want you to notice at least two things there in that sentence. On the one hand, you hear the fear, right? Which we just talked about in the last point. But on the other hand, you hear the recognition of something very, very important. They were saying, we need a go-between, right? Moses, we need you to stand in the gap for us between us and God. They were saying what we desperately need now that we have heard God speak is a mediator between us and God. And listen, that's what happened, right? Moses played the role of a mediator. See verse 21, the people stood far off. While Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. Moses went into the thick darkness for God's people. In the place of God's people. Now, neat as that is, it doesn't do you and me a whole lot of good, to be honest. There the Israelites were, right? Trembling at the foot of the mountain. And God provided a mediator for them in the person of Moses. Great, But Moses could only be a mediator for one group of people 
in one place at one time. It's probably a little bit unfair to say that Moses isn't a help to us at all and doesn't do us any good. He was at least a picture, a shadow, a type, right, of something to come. He was there as a sort of promise to those people and to us that one day, someday, God would send someone to mediate for all people in all places at all times. God himself would provide someone who would go into that scary, thick darkness to mediate between himself and the creation he loves. I, in fact, know that this is how we're supposed to read this story. (laughs) Because the author of Hebrews wrote this. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire. See, the mountain in Exodus chapter 20, it was a hint. It was a taste and a picture. And he goes on. You haven't come to a mountain burning with fire, he says, to darkness, to gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast. Or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. You haven't come to this kind of mountain, the author is saying. And then he says this. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Not to be crass, but as great as Moses was, he was just a tease. Right? Jesus came to stand in the gap for us, to quiet our fears, to enter the thick darkness in our place, to be the final and perfect mediator for us. Now, hold on to that thought for a minute because this, I think the story gets even better. Because the story is not just showing us that we need a mediator, but also that we need a substitute. Right? You notice the flow of the story here. In verse 21, Moses went into the thick darkness where God was. And then in verse 22 and following to the end of the chapter, there are all these instructions about building an altar and slaughtering livestock and making offerings. This mysterious mountain, God is saying, is about to become a place of blood, guts, and death. I want you to do me a favor here and try, just try to imagine this. A little bit, okay? We hear sacrifice in the Bible and we sterilize it in some kind of cartoonish concept concept on a Sunday school flannel board. But you have to imagine the sights and the sounds and the smells that we're talking about here. Muscles tightened as men struggled to hold animals down in order to slaughter, slaughter them. I mean, it was sweaty. It was intense. It was hands-on. It was hard work. It was very, very earthy. The sound of animals bleeding, the sound of final gasps of air and of flesh being torn. Blood and gut spilled. I mean, blood matted with fur and wool all over the place. The flies that must have swarmed. I'm a deer hunter. Um, And I've killed and quartered many deer in order to be processed. And it's gross work. It's stinky work. And it's hard work. But listen, I was with someone once, hunting with someone once, who wounded a deer and had to put it down with a knife. And I was not prepared for that. (laughs) It was not quiet. It was not quick. And it was not easy. And I never want to see or hear that again. 
It was brutal. I mean, if you were there on this day, you couldn't forget. You wouldn't forget. I saw it one time and I don't ever want to see it again. They saw hundreds and thousands of animals slaughtered. Right? The blood, the guts, the gas, the flies, the struggle. Most scholars point out rightly that God is here in this passage at the end of Exodus chapter 20. He's distinguishing his worship, the way he would be worshipped by his people, from the way the Canaanites were worshipping. Sure, especially verse 23 and his prohibition against gold and silver images. But what about all these details that are given about this altar? An altar of stone, unhewn stones, right? Don't use any tools to shape these rocks. I think God is saying, if you want to worship me, it is not going to be pretty. Don't carve the rocks. Don't make this place look nice. Make it plain and rugged and jagged and coarse and earthy. Because it is to be a place of brutality and blood and death. God is saying to worship me is going to require blood, gore, and death. The truth of your brokenness and my brokenness, it demands this, is what God is saying. He is saying this with gallons and gallons of blood pooling beneath their feet and the burnt flesh that they are smelling. He is saying, I will move to you in such grace that I will provide a substitute for you so that I can have you as my home forever and ever. And listen to me, when you see God himself provide this substitute for you, it will transform a rugged, undecorated, plain, earthy place of death into a wonderful place of beauty. I mean, it's the substitute that we're talking about right now that enables you to finally and freely admit your brokenness and stand in grace and in grace alone. It's the substitute that hushes the law's loud thunder. We sing this hymn from time to time. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. And he has brought us nigh to God. The sacrifices at Mount Sinai, they were like Moses. Just a picture, a hint, a taste, a shadow, and a type of what was to come. See, those sacrifices would need to be repeated again and again and again. But the sacrifice to come, the promise is this, is that it would be a sacrifice to end all sacrifices because Jesus would be the perfect substitute for all people at all places at all times. And it doesn't matter who you are or where you've been or what you have done. If you come to him through this substitute, you are free and loved and accepted and secure. The word that shows up in our passage that, that I use for the title, thick darkness, I, it might be just me, but that, ju- that word jumped out at, to me because it's such a descriptive word or phrase, right? Moses went into the thick darkness, not just the darkness, but the thick darkness, right? Heavy, deep darkness. 
Right? The same exact word shows up somewhere else in the Bible. It shows up in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 2. Darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the people. That descriptive word might in fact be a great word for describing what the law reveals to us. That it reveals the thick darkness of our hearts and the thick darkness of the judgment you and I deserve. Here's what Luke, the gospel writer, he wrote about Jesus' crucifixion when he was substituted upon the cross for you and me. Here's what he wrote. It was about the sixth hour and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour for the sun stopped shining. And this, I think, is what Luke is wanting us to see. That Jesus not only entered the thick darkness for you, but he took the thick darkness of God's judgment for you. And when he did, the cross, it became a place of brutality. The cross was a place of brutality. And it was undecorated and it was earthy, right? It was a place of blood and death. But when that happened, the cross became a place of beauty. The law terrifies But the good news of the gospel is what brings us joy and brings us freedom. So much so that it can even become a delight for you and me to freely admit our brokenness now. But here's the thing. Some of you will hear this and you will remain anxious today. And you will miss the joy that is here. And this is the reason why. As an old author, Horatius Bonner wrote, Our thoughts will run in a self-righteous direction and be occupied not with what Christ has done, but with what we have yet to do to get ourselves connected with this work. In other words, he's saying, we'll hear this and then we'll look at ourselves. We'll hear this and then we'll look inside and we'll question whether or not we have the right amount of faith or whether we're sincere enough in our belief, right? Or if we've done enough. And I want to end with the same man's thoughts and answers to that predicament, because he's imagining the fear of an Israelite offering his sacrifices. And he uses that to point us to look to Jesus. This is what he wrote. What should we have said to the Israelite who on bringing his lamb to the tabernacle should puzzle himself with questions as to the right mode of laying his hands on the head of the victim? And who should refuse to take any comfort from the sacrifice because he was not sure whether he had laid them aright on the proper place in the right direction with adequate pressure or in the best attitude? Should we not have told him that his own actings concerning the lamb were not the lamb and yet that he was speaking as if they were? Should we not have told him that the lamb was everything, his touch nothing, as to virtue or merit or recommendation. Should we have told him, should we not have told him to be of good cheer, not because he had laid his hands on the victim in the most approved fashion, but because they had touched the victim, however lightly and imperfectly, and thereby said, let this lamb stand for me, answer for me, die for me. The point for him to settle was not, was my touch right or wrong, light or heavy, but was it the touch of the right lamb, the lamb appointed for the taking away of sin. All the lambs at Mount Sinai were pointing to the lamb. And I'm trying to encourage you this morning to stop looking at yourself 
and look at Jesus. Stop asking yourself even the question, do I believe enough this morning? And look at Jesus. Stop all of that and look at Jesus, the Lamb appointed to take away the sin of the world. I love that we are singing Christmas songs this morning. But please keep in mind this, even as we sing these Christmas songs, that Jesus came into the world and he was born under a death sentence. He was born to die for you, for me, for his people. Admit your fear and come to Jesus and find the freedom and wonder of grace so that you can sing with joy about the one who hushed the law's loud loud thunder and quenched Mount Sinai's flame and brought us nigh to God. Let's pray together. Our merciful Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story in Exodus chapter 20. And we thank you for the picture that it paints for us. And we thank you so much that we do not find ourselves in need any longer of offering sacrifices in order to be right with you. Because you have given to us the perfect mediator, the perfect substitute in your own son. Father, we pray that you would overwhelm us with your amazing grace. That even as we see the law, our eye would be lifted up to see the one who came and fulfilled the law in our place to forever Hush the law's loud thunder. That we would see the one who has washed us in his blood. And brought us to you. In order that we would sing for joy. For all you have done for us in Jesus. In whose name we do pray. Amen.